Um, we now have three governments. Of course, they are not government. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say they are government yet in the country. So, which is very complicated now. And nobody knows which state or town being led by which government now. <laughs> Welcome to Crossing Face, where Christian, a Muslim, started this podcast, uh, first Christian Muslim podcast. Um, now it's the largest multi-faith podcast out there. Um, today, we are here with Simon Vilnius and, and Lucky Curry uh, to talk about uh, an interesting part of the world, uh, Yeramar and uh, the persecution of the Rohingya people. Although there is some multi-faith persecution going on, we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, well, I'd like to thank Simon and Lucky for being here. Thank you. Both are activists on the Rohingya issue, um, and and I thought it, it pertinent because there's a number of of you know, persecution is a growing business, uh, and the idea that we would uh, spend some time uh, unpacking this ongoing and longstanding uh, issue in, in in Southeast Asia. So. Um, Simon, could you just give me a little, give a little brief introduction of who you are and what you're about? And, uh, and then we could pass it to Lucky as well. Sure. Well, my name is Simon Villadas. I'm executive director of the International Campaign for the Rohingya, uh, based here in Washington, D.C. And, uh, I've been working on Burma, uh, on human rights issues for, um, nearly 30 years now. Not very darn. You know, so and then we met back in 2016, I think, in the International Freedom Roundtable. So um, it's nice to have you on the show. Um, so lucky Kareem, you're an activist and uh, in work bringing the issue, and you're also a, a refugee and a victim of the genocide over there. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's nice to be here with you. Um, my name is Lucky Kareem, and I was born uh, in Barma, Mangdal. And I was forced to flee my home in August 2017 with the whole community to Bangladesh. And I lived for more than six years in refugee camp in Bangladesh, Kaksabzar, before resettling to U.S. in late December 2022. I've been carefully watching the situations in both in Kaksabzar refugee camps in Burma, for Rohingya and for other ethnic minorities as well. Um, I'm trying to bring all of those challenges at the table in D.C. and doing my best to um, to figure out the possible solutions for our people and for other ethnic minorities in Burma. And I have been doing lots of lobbying and, and activism and advocacy meetings in person and virtual with government officials in the U.S. and outside the U.S. as well, and with more stakeholders and government donors who are supporting the Rohingya refugee directly through INGOs, humanitarian, or politically uh, and globally. Thank you. No, thank you. So maybe, Simon, could you just give us a summary of what the Rohingya genocide is? Uh, you know, and it's it's hard to distill these things into small sound bites, and that's which we, we try not to do. But in, for the purposes of of someone who doesn't know uh, uh, what actually is going on there, and for how long and why, um, could you just give a brief, just a brief uh, summary for us? Yeah, I mean the. What we have in Burma is uh, the essential problem in Burma is that it's been since independence. It's been for most of its most of the time in Burma, it's been ruled by uh, the Myanmar military, and 
It's a, a brutal, corrupt military junta. Uh, and like most brutal military hunters uh, around the world, they to try and get some semblance of popular support. Uh, they they claim to be the defenders of uh, like like all these kind of militaries are similar in their playbook. They they claim to be uh, the defenders of the dominant faith in that country, and they claim to be the defenders of the dominant ethnicity in that country to try and uh, uh, stay in power. And in the case of in the case of Burma, they the, the military has. Um, has um for ongoing uh battles and wars against um Burma's ethnic minorities, which constitute about between one third to one half of the population. And the the ethnic minority that they focus most of their uh 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 cruelty on has been the Rohingya. Uh because the Rohing the Rohingya are predominantly Muslim and um, there's, you know, there is, uh, a lot of existing anti-Muslim and anti-Rohingya prejudice in the country. And the military has exploited that. It's exacerbated that, uh, has doubled down on that. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we've seen, um, over the decades, numerous times when the, the military has forced, uh, Rohingya to flee to Bangladesh to the extent now that there's more Rohingya living in Bangladesh than there are in Burma right now. Um, and, um, it's, uh, it's a very cynical tactic, uh, by the military. And, uh, and it, it definitely at this point, it, it constitutes a genocide as, uh, determined by the U.S. in the, uh, in this Rohingya genocide determination. And uh, this is what we're battling. So I appreciate that, uh, Simon. And this is a little bit of a snapshot. I wanted to just get a little bit deeper. Lucky, uh, you know, a lot of people don't uh, when they say it's a it's a predominantly Buddhist population. Uh, it could you maybe unpack for us? Uh, it, it, is it a, is this a religious and ethnic issue? Uh, and 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 how is it defined by someone who has experienced it from a, a faith and 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 an ethnic background? So when it comes to a religious persecution issue, what's what's the element there? Because um, Simon mentioned that it says it's a military sort of dictatorship, and they're using pulling this out of the playbook. But what is the the crux of the of the um, of how this this uh, the, the persecution and genocide has started from from a religious and ethnic background? Um, I should say it is both actually. It is, it is very much more political than the religious. Um, in Burma, if I talk about the, if I talk from my own living experience in the country, uh, for years, of course, before becoming a refugee, um, the first thing would be the, you know, the, they actually targeted our culture and then the religion and then the language. So these are the three main targets that they, they figure out and, and identified before they commit the genocide against us. So these are the three main resources, how these resources have supported them to commit the genocide over us again and again, not just once, 
but many times since the 90s. So when I talk about the religious, it's actually because none of the Rohingya is part of the government um, in, 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 the, in the country because we don't have uh, Rohingya in the military, we don't have Rohingya at the government level, we don't have Rohingya at the policymakers, which is why it's pretty much easier for the government to target the Muslim minority um, in the country. And when we talk about the language, because all the Rohingya people are just kicked out from these schools and the secondary schools or college or universities, which is why more than half of the Rohingya still do not speak the official language, which is the families in the country. And then we have the lack of communications with the government officials and other uh, leaders and the policymakers in the country. So this is what this is one of the top targets why we have been victims of refugee and genocide over again and again. And and of course um, the culture, which is which is which we are taught by our parents and grandparents, which we have been following, of course, is our bulk. And it is of course not similar to what the virus other minorities have been following as their own culture. So these are the three main um, three main resources actually which have fully supported the genocide uh, to commit against the Rohingya and against Muslim minority. Um, yeah, so these are the three main resources I should say because this is this is where the genocide has started from. It it just didn't happen within a day, over a night, over a month. No. They just didn't come to our houses and burned out. No, they didn't do like this, actually. They started from the very beginning, and the foundation of genocide was actually the culture, religious, and language, and other resources, which have fully, finally, and supported the genesis to be happened. I remember when I was working on the issue, you were speaking about um, sort of anchor points, uh, and the word, well, I think 1982 was an anchor point. Uh, uh, when it came to uh, sort of discriminatory, discriminatory laws. And then I, I remember 2015, 2014, 2015, things started moving in, 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 a, in a very dangerous direction. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you, because this was the num- this was the word that was thrown around uh, at the time, and it was apartheid, like an apartheid state. As someone who has lived under a regime or an apartheid state, and I'm, I'm, at, I'm asking the question, as... Would you describe it as an apartheid state? And if so, what would be the core components that you experienced that would be uh, that would allow that would allow you to come to the conclusion that as an apartheid existence? Uh, well, I think it it is actually again uh, both sides um, in the country because we you know we if I just briefly describe how everything has started from the very beginning is actually from the two resources that I have mentioned clearly. This is where the genocide has started from our grandparents' generation, not just from our own generation, because it has been continuing since um, the 90s or maybe earlier till today. Um, so if I talk just from why I was the victim of the genocide in 2017, um, we have been experiencing all of those challenges and genocide because since uh, 2015 or even earlier. And when we flew to the, uh, to Bangladesh in 2017, August, it is not just the day that the genocide was happened. Um, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that we are just part of the genocide or it just happened overnight or over a day to us. But I just, I should say, um, all the Rohingya, uh, children or the young generation or the, the oldest generation, um, in the country was born, have been the victim of 
Genesis has been brought till today. And when we talk the part of part of the country, of course, in many ways we belong to the countries, obviously. And of course, all of us were born there. But the thing is actually including and excluding. So this is what the genocide really means, um, because we are just not included officially. That doesn't mean we don't belong to uh, how it looks like us, or we don't belong to the country, but it just means included and excluded. So when we, what I need to describe the genocide fully, shortly, I mean, one word, it is actually because of the religious persecution and because of the language and the culture that we hold and, and personally who we are as Muslim Rohingya, it just, it just defined genocide. And this is the reason we are always excluded from all the decision making and policy making. So this, this, there would be just few words to describe the genocide and all of those history, all of those, uh, story and the problems happened to us can be described in a long uh, way. But this is, these are the foundations of how the genocide started for all the generations in the country. So, in, in, you know, in America, you know, we, we you know, if we're we're, disen- we're disenfranchised. We start an organization. We keep ourselves. We go and protest. In 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 Miramar, there's you, you're, you're you're barred from holding offices, government offices. You're you're barred from uh, is it the right to assemble? Uh, there's there's a there's limited movement uh, that there. And then, and there's a number of 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 other uh, elements that are put on you uh, that, that that restrict your citizenship and your ability to engage as a citizen. Um, and and so, you know, Simon, you're you're a Brit, uh, right? You're correct. You're from you're you're, you're both British and American. Okay, so you know, and 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 uh, so I'm, I'm a New Yorker, and so we you know we've cast aside. You know, the shackles of monarchy, and uh, but but here, but you know, and and, and and but I always say we're heavily socialized with um, with uh, British culture because of the you guys call it the Seven Years' War, we call it the French and Indian War, and then uh, and the, the American Revolution. Um, but this, uh, in, in despite that, all of that uh, conflict that happened back in the day, um, you know, you, you still have as a Brit, where you're, you can. Be here, work here, and and and, and experience uh, uh, what it is to 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 be in America. Even and and so the idea is that there's you have agency here, um, and so uh, because we uh, of our the way in which our society works and the way in which our our, our laws have been have been uh, have been preserved and are executed on a daily basis. The main thing you could get um, get a little bit into um, the idea of of what it means to to um from your advocacy perspective as an outsider understanding what's going on and working on this for for a substantial amount of time what is it that you're looking for within your organization from the global community and what would it be an exact uh um, catalyst for change that you would see that you could step that that would happen inside in in miramar so what is it that you're doing on the outside as an advocacy organization and then, what is the actionable item that that could that could affect change internally? Uh, you said a total, maybe an old basis of total oversight of the government and the military, but um, but from your perspective and the agenda items you're working on. Certainly, certainly, um, very big question. Um, I mean, just to pull it back a little bit, you know, our um, our mission at the International Campaign for the Rohingya is to. Uh, uh, 
uh, elevate and amplify uh, the voices of the Rohingya in the corridors of power. And so, uh, uh, you know, this this podcast is is wonderful. You know, when you invited me, I would want to make sure that we also uh, included Lucky uh, in this, and uh, so that she can be the uh, the main voice uh, on this program. Uh, that that's what we're all about. Um, what we what we're doing primarily uh, in terms of our strategy is, I mean, quite frankly, at this point, um, Burma needs regime change. We need to get the military junta out of power, and that's been really clear, particularly since the February first, twenty twenty one, military coup, uh, which is still, you know, which is still unfolding. Um, and what we've seen since the military coup has been, in some ways, quite encouraging. Um, and that is, um, you know, a rising up of uh, people inside Burma to resist this military coup. And we've seen uh, an amazing uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious alliance uh, among the majority ethnic Burmans, uh, ethnic minorities uh, like the Kachin, the Chin, um, the Karen, many others. And, you know, two things that, that, that sort of really jumped out at me during the the mass protests right after the coup was one, I remember seeing pictures of Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh um, holding up the sort of free finger sign in support of the spring revolution in in Burma. And I was also deeply moved by seeing um, uh, Rohingya in Rangoon holding up signs identifying themselves as Rohingya and participating in the protests. And that, that gave me a lot of encouragement. You know, it's sort of even thinking about it, I started getting cheery. Um, and and also, um, I remember hearing from from um, Burmese people, ethnic Burmans, who uh, after the military coup, they they said said publicly um, that um, that they, they they now understood that the military had committed genocide against the Rohingya. They said, "We get it now." Now the military is doing to us what they did to the Rohingya. They were joining up the dots. Um, and so those those things um, greatly encouraged me. And what we're seeing in Burma right now, <clears throat> it you know, this military coup is a failed coup. The military is losing ground. Um, they uh, they're losing they're losing ground in uh, uh, in ethnic minority areas. They've lost significant ground in the last two months, uh, and they're not going to get it back. Um, and in the Burman heartlands, um, these people defense forces have risen up, and and they're even even in the ethnic heartlands, there are a number of areas and towns that are now no longer under the control of the military. They they control less than half of the uh, the country at this point, and even in the parts. Where they they do notionally um, uh, have control, like the big cities, Mandalay and Rangoon, um, they don't have any support in those cities. Uh, Burmese troops are deserting. 
um they're losing ground um and uh uh and uh and the, the military is being increasingly cut off from what it needs to stay in power which is hard currency uh weapons and uh and aviation fuel for use in their airstrikes so you know what i what i see is you know we need we need to add military rule this this is about regime change and it's about regime change from below uh uh is this this is this is the combination of this decades long battle between the people of Myanmar and the military okay you're so I was saying you're speaking to a guy who's lot, a third of my career was regime change. So, because one of the, you know, to, yes, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, the first 10 years of my career, and then I was in the Arab Spring, and you took Barak, and then, uh, um, it was, it, what it was, one of the, one of the interesting elements is that we, we translated into Farsi and, um, well, uh, and in Arabic, the Montgomery story, uh, and, uh, Martin Luther King. And, and of course, uh, you know, the famous Dali Aziana, one of the organizers of Turner Square was, you know, work was at the America's Long Congress and it was working, uh, in the, in the department that we, that, that, that I was, that I was a part of, um, and we helped training, uh, those, those, those elements within the Arab Spring. Um, and so, uh, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, Lucky, is that, you know, what's, what, what, how have you been received, uh, uh, both domestically and internationally? But I also wanted to ask you, what, what would a durable, uh, uh, agenda be for regime change? Because the problem that we had with the Arab Spring is we trained a lot of activists and they were great. But then the only people that understood governmental process was, Muslim brotherhood. And so the challenge is, is that that backing was filled by very, very astute uh, and and uh, resourced uh, peoples that were able to uh, take advantage of the regime changes that happened and and the the uh, the activism that happened over the Arab Spring. So, you know, what 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 is it that would be a, a something that would be a, a durable uh, regime change that would that would act in the best interests of the of the, uh, of the Rohingya people and the other religious minority and ethnic minorities. Did you get that lucky? Oh, you asking me? <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting for Severin to respond. No, it's okay. No, I'm trying. You know, so it's because he's sort of set up a little bit of the advocacy and then the, then the idea would be you're, you know, you're, you're, you're always in, you know, so what would be, what would, what would create a durable lasting, what would actually for the machine change and then a dur and then what would create durability, but the idea for something that would be lasting, would it be a coalition government? What would, what would it look like after regime change and how would that work? Well, it is, first of all, the issue of Rohingya is very complicated. Um, if I, just talk as a member of community. Um, we now have three governments. Of course, they are not government. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say they're government yet in the country. NEG, military, NEA, which is, of course, illegal and officially and not recognized as a government of the country yet. And the whole country, the whole government needs to be reelected, restarted, and everything should be, uh, rebegin when 
the problems uh, got solved in the country, so which is very complicated now. And nobody knows which state or town being led by which government now. <laughs> so it is very complicated. First of all, if I talk about the durable solution, the only thing would be, of course, while people are resident in the, in the refugee camps in Bangladesh, Indonesia, Malaysia, or Saudi Arabia even and elsewhere, we need more humanitarian resources, which is a very short-term solution. We just need it to serve people while we're out of the country. And of course, we need more, um, you know, production assistance for the uh, young people and for, of course, women advocates. Um, but which is very short-term solution. It's just temporarily for for weeks, for months. But what is the long-lasting solution is actually for us to go back to the country one day. So, for example, for me personally, coming to the U.S. was not my decision and it was not a choice. And it was not something I was willing to be here, of course, because nobody wants, wants to leave their, their country. The only thing is actually... Myself and other people, seniors or juniors, traveling all over the world, um, seeking asylum, seeking refuge, seeking uh, resettlement program or support to be in a safe place is actually just to protect themselves and just to protect ourselves. So it's not something that we are, we decide to flee from one country to another, from our country to another country. No, we don't do this. So when it comes to long lasting solution, it is a huge question and have more answers. Um, First of all, when we talk about the repatriation, do we talk about the people just living in the camps in Bangladesh? Or do we also talk about us, for example, living in Chicago, living in Canada, living in Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and Indonesia? Do we also talk about all of us, for example? Hmm. And second question, when we talk about the repatriating officially and legally uh, to Burma, do we talk about the people who fled like myself in 2017 after huge genocide, or do we also talk about the people who fled in 1980s? So, who do we talk about actually, and whose generation do we want to repatriate first? Um, so, there are many questions when it comes to repatriation, being able to return to Burma, um, and of course, nobody has the answer, uh, which is fine. So, when we talk about what happens after the repatriation, even if you repatriate just one generation from 17, from 18, or from 19, what happens after the repatriation in the country? The only question is actually, anybody can repatriate illegally, for example. People living in the camps are pretty much closer to Burma, and it's just few, few steps walk away from Burma to the refugee camp, which anybody can just go midnight, in the evening, obviously, it's illegal. But still, who is responsible after the repatriation? That's the question. Who is going to protect these people? And who is going to ensure that the genocide doesn't happen continuously to them over again and again? And who is going to ensure that people are not fleeing from the country over again and again? So these are the questions. Who will be responsible? Will, it, will the U.S. be responsible for this? Will Canada be responsible for this? Will just the international community be responsible uh, to take care of the community after the repatriation? Or is it going to be just one government from Burma to take care of the Rohingya in the country after the repatriation? So we have more questions as a member of community, even if I don't talk as an activism, 
um, than the answers, of course, uh, because the revolution doesn't, doesn't just happen in one night, one day. We, you or I, we can't just talk about revolution without ensuring all of those questions. Um, these questions, not just I have, but the whole community to have because we don't have any answers for those. And for example, my dad lives in Malaysia, let's say. My brother lives in Saudi Arabia, let's say. And if you talk about repatriating just myself, because I fled in 2017, what am I going to do in the country without my parents? What am I going to do in the country without my siblings, right? So if you want me not to be paddleless, if you want me to live with my family peacefully in the country, you need to, you need to help me bring my dad and, and brother from both the countries. So then the repatriation is not just with myself, actually, because you don't want me to miss my family and you don't also want me to leave country illegally and seek refuge in Bangladesh to get a fake passport and meet my parents. No. If you don't want me to continue all of those challenges because all of us want to meet our family members and we're going to do the same thing again and again because we want our parents with us. So what, which generation do you talk about when it comes to repatriation? So it's a lot when it comes to durable solution or lasting solution. But when we talk about the short-term solution, we need more humanitarian assistance for people living everywhere and all, all around the world, not just in the camps, but people living in Indonesia, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and everywhere else. And of course, we need more protection assistance. Um, so it is from both INGOs and agencies working in the camps, a refugee, a poor refugee actually, and also from the international community because the funding is the main Men, men want to solve all of those temporary problems because without funding, nothing gets solved and without funding, nobody goes for work. So we just why we need enough and a lot more funding to solve some of those uh, current situations and to make sure all of us, wherever we are now, are safe and of course to make sure we have a home to live and, and we belong to at least a refugee camp. So this, these are the main, main points. So, so I, so I, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that there's the repatriation, obviously, and the reunification of families, and the, and the protections associated with that are, are 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 one of the paramount issues. Is is there? But the, the, the Tibetans have a government in exile. You know, the, um, the Iranians. I had I've dealt with people, a whole group of people that had to want to restore the restore the Shah. Um, there's these all these. Government in exiles or assemblies. Um, is there, uh, I know there's advocacy groups and there's a diaspora of uh, the Rohingya. What's the organizational structure and communication for uh, amongst those, among those groups? Is, is there a government in exile? Is there a, uh, an idea of what the government would look like? Uh, is it a representative government? What, what is, what are the thoughts on that, on that post regime change? How would that transition so that the protections that you're speaking about would be uh, not enforced and would be enshrined in in, in a new a new era? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to go, Simon? Sure. Yeah. I mean, currently there is a uh, uh, a multi-ethnic um, national unity government of Myanmar or NUG, which um, includes. Um, uh, which includes, uh, you know, elected officials who were elected in the uh, uh, the 2020 uh, elections in Burma and were, uh, you know, about to take up their seats 
in the parliament in 2021 when military launched this military coup. And the NEG has been... Um, uh, so it's it's still intact, is what you Yeah, saying. yeah, exactly, exactly. So there, there, is, there is this government in exile, um, the National Unity Government, the NUG. And, you know, as, as an organization, internationally and they their anger, we, we have a, a twofold approach to the NUG. We 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 recognize the NUG as as the legitimate government of Burma. But then, like any other government that we deal with, we hold it accountable to standards of democracy and human rights. And so it's a it's um it's a, it is a um it is an approach of of critical support. Okay. Uh, as we as we you know as we <clears throat> as we you know as we uh, 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 try to make you know try to help you know um, shape a future for all the people of Burma that uh, 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 that uh, uh, is going to be uh, you know that much better than we we've currently had under the under the military hunter. So, so so that's the so what and what now the idea of mm-hmm. regime change happens the government's in exist in exile right now the, the the empowerment of that government to provide for security and repatriation uh so that so that the the, the, the country can be reconstituted lucky what's the your the, the body of your current advocacy right now like what is it that you're doing right now on the hill and and globally for uh the Rohingya cause and to you know, in, in, instill this this regime change. Well, my main focus is actually the U.S. right now. I mean, over the last year because I wasn't able to travel internationally uh, because of some document issues. So we just why my main focus was in D.C. But this year, my focus can be changed a little bit out of the country, um, probably in Bangladesh more likely and in other countries, including China, hopefully. Um, so because I want to just make sure the countries that have good relationship with the Burmese government in the country to be part of our advocacy, uh, campaigns, because there's a thing in our language, um, if somebody is the, um, if, if somebody do any crimes, for example, if you don't talk to that person, who are you going to solve the problem with? So. The same thing we have in our mind is actually the dialogue should not just be with the international community among ourselves. It should also be with the people who are the, who actually are doing the crimes against us, either against humanity, against refugee, whoever it is. So we need to also have the more good relationship with those countries who have regular communications and, and connections with the, with the government in the country, in Burma, to be able to understand their internal policy and to be able to understand their mindset and of course to also make sure we share our language while we do the advocacy and to make sure we we bring the right point to the right people because if we don't understand what the government of Burma really wants from us, if we don't understand what they are really going to do, then if we can just follow our own white death, it's not going to bring any single share. That's my a kind of philosophy. So, which is why want to have more relationship with those countries who have good relationship with the Burmese government as well as can understand the um, entire situations of the whole community. So, my main focus was in this year, especially with the 
State Department and U.S. government, so it's going to be a little change this year. Um, but I would say um, we have still less voices from the Rohingya. So when it comes to involvement, there is still 2% of just Rohingya's involvement in policy making, decision making, and, and when it comes to high level um, decision making, because I shouldn't say there's no Rohingya's involvement, for example, because we are part of some sort of pilot project repatriation is still called in Bangladesh. Some of our members were there to just see the view of the Burma, to see how it looks like, and to have a trip, short trip, and have no voice at all. And some of us, for example, part of the resolution when it comes to deciding who to fund, and some of us, for example, part of the call, event, and meeting when it comes to making a decision, um, trips to the camp from a student department, for example, something like this. So there's two parts of involvement from the Rohingya side, although our voices are not yet finalized and our voices are not yet hard enough. So, of course, a little bit of involvement, but it should be, it should be, um, more active and, and more actually when it more involvement. So when it comes to Rohingya's involvement again, to just be clear, we have different voices, although we are, we belong to the same country and same community. For example, Kamal has grew up in Malaysia, was not born in Burma, and have never experienced genocide, have never experienced strategic life, but only have seen the life of Malaysia, how the how how the life looks like for a Rohingya to be in Malaysia. And some of us, for example, grew up in the US, was born in the US and have never experienced anything in this in genocide or refugee camps or the Burma and have never seen and have no idea how the Burma politics or philosophy works. And some of us, for example, grew up or born in Saudi Arabia, let's say. It's not our fault that we've, we we were born in different countries and parts parts of the world because we were forced to flee to different countries and we were kicked out. So we just we just born and our parents just gave birth to us wherever they could. So it's not our fault. But the thing is actually when it comes to Rohingya's involvement, the industrial community and then the government should be very much careful about who they are involved in. For what purpose and for which department, for which decisions. For example, when it comes to humanitarian resources, they need to make sure it is a refugee who understands the refugee situations. It is a refugee who understands the refugee problems and who are himself or herself a refugee. And when it comes to political involvement, they also need to make sure it is someone who experienced practical genocide in the country in Burma and it is someone who are really born in Burma. And when it comes to diaspora involvement, they can have anybody from Malaysia, have anybody from anywhere to represent how a life for Rohingya works and looks like in diaspora with no identity and Indian life forever, for 30 years, for 40 years. So when it comes to Rohingya's involvement, we, since we have many different voices, although we all are same body and same heart and same soul and belong to the same country, but it's still People involved with Rohingya should be very careful about who they are involved in and for what purpose. So again, um, our focus is actually to be able to return to Burma. But again, it needs more changes, more Rohingya's involvement. Without our involvement, nobody can ever do anything. This is this is this has been my what. Nobody can ever. Doesn't matter how much funding a state department has spent, how much funding a white country has spent or how many years people in general community, friends, colleagues have been working for us, there is not a single chance. If you can show me a single chance, I will be thankful for 30 years in the last. And of course, I can grant you there wouldn't be any single chance in the near future, unless 
there is full Rohingya's involvement. Because if you don't know what my problem is, what are you going to do for me with your funding? So uh, we need more involvement first. And again, uh, we need to have different voices in different tables to be able to find short-term and long-term solution. It's the, it's the challenge of, of a diaspora movement. I mean, I, an American of African descent, my great-grandfather came here. So it's, uh, it, it, the, 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 we all know what happened with the drawdown of Tomac and, and what's happened over the last 22 years. Um, and, and it's always been strange because I have a longstanding career, you know, 30 years in national security and, and, uh, and, and government relations. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a third generation Afghan American. So the idea that, that I would elaborate on policy uh, for for uh, for the Afghan people uh, would would be um, ridiculous, and it's something I've never tried to do. Um, but because of my career, provided access. Um, but for a long time, just there was just one person that that dictated policy uh, for uh, that was the gatekeeper. Um, it was a master Halazad for an Afghan policy. And so that one person uh, handpicked you know, uh, individuals involved in the Afghan policy, but also uh, was 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 the sole individual that, that the U.S. government went to um, since the Reagan years. So the idea of of maintaining that diverse connectivity uh, to the country uh, is is important. Even though I was raised by my great grandparents, they died when I was ten, and my grandparents. So that's how I got one foot in one world and one foot in the other. Uh, the, the idea of making sure that there's individuals from uh, a diverse background who have experienced what has been going on is getting them involved and making sure that they have agency is, is, is such an important element. Uh, and speaking, like I said, from my personal background. So we're, we're right about to close, but I wanted to, if there's a, uh, an, an ask that we could, we could talk about for um, um, the listenership, you know, 83% of our listenership are millennials. Uh, we have a global reach, uh, and uh, and so what would be the what would be the ask uh, for individuals to get involved, um, for them to uh, communicate with you? I'm sure everybody's looking. For, nobody has enough money, uh, so I'm sure you're looking for donations. But um, but what would be the what would be the action items for our listenership? The young listenership that that's that's socializing themselves with this issue, and how would they get involved? And what would be the course we ask of the of the of the uh, process-based community. Definitely, one should go to our website uh, for the international campaign for the Rohingya. It's uh, uh, rohingyacampaign.org. Um, and on there, you'll find uh, all kinds of things that people can do. I mean, if you live in the U.S., we're currently lobbying Congress to pass a number of bills, uh, resolutions, and also appropriations uh, uh, in, uh, uh, that would, uh, you know, both put, uh, direct political and economic pressure on the Myanmar military and also, uh, build up and support civil society groups and the pro-democracy forces. So, um, but also, you know, wherever you live, we, we've been putting direct pressure on corporations that support the military and that includes, Oil companies like uh, Chevron of the U.S. and uh, Plusco of South Korea. We've been uh, also putting pressure on Facebook to pay reparations to the Rohingya community 
for allowing its platform to be used in a campaign of hate speech that was an integral part of the genocide against the Rohingya um, uh, uh, more recently. Um, and we're also, um, we're also uh, you know, put, again, putting pressure on, uh, on governments around the world to uh, work with the U.S., uh, Canada, UK, European Union, and input increasing um, sanctions on the Myanmar military, and to uh, and to provide more support for the uh, the democratic opposition. So, if you just go to the website of International Campaign for the Rohingya at RohingyaCampaign.org, you'll find a number of actions there that you can take. There will petitions you can sign. Uh, that will get you onto our email list, and every week we'll send you an email saying what you can do next. And, you know, lucky last word, what would you, if you're, if you could do an ask to, to individuals um, right now and, and uh, what would, what would that be uh, for our listenership? Um, it was time in, you know, eloquently talked about, you know, the mechanics of the website and what to do and, 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 I, and the, the government relations agenda. But as a, as a refugee, as someone who's experienced this genocide and, and is living it every day, you know what? What's what's the what's the um, the one thing that you want our listenership to take away? Well, um, there are many things that we want and we need. <laughs> um, again, from the people and from from people who are supporting us, actually. But the main main thing would be for Muslim community, Muslim individuals, and, and people who experienced the similar situations as would be actually my recommendation would be supporting the organizations and civil society groups in the camps if you want if you want to support direct uh directly to the refugee um not just as a whole as Rohingya everywhere else broadly and not just in political part in the in the country if you want to just put some sort of little effort and directly support to refugee in the camps we'd be supporting civil society organizations and engaging with um, young leaders and, and young, uh, youth and, and advocates in the camps because I believe, uh, their voices are actually more important than what other people have been saying, uh, out of the country because they are the victims of all of those things and, and the genocide that happened to them and, and to me actually. So, uh, the needs, uh, needs should be really prioritized, um, because I, I feel like, you know, what I, what I have observed in the last few years from my humanitarian job and the activism job is actually nobody asks refugee what they want, but, uh, and nobody asks refugee to work, um, with them actually, but everyone is so interested to announce them what they have been doing for refugee and then they want to work for refugee. So I think Rohingya have been really excluded from being involved in even humanitarian part. So because we always ask people that we want to work for you, but we don't ask people that we want to work with you. So I think people working for the Rohingya should work with the Rohingya, not for the Rohingya, especially in the camps and if any Muslim community want to support Rohingya. My high recommendation would be to engage with youth and the civil society groups, because again, civil society groups are not legal officially in the country, even in the refugee camp, to work for their families. For their own people and the livelihood has been all just all of the resources because the government doesn't allow in the country. So if anybody wanna who died support the refugee, it would be engaging with their own people 
and do do whatever they can. And if if you or anybody want to support Rohingya politically, you would be actually engaging with leaders living in diaspora, with INGOs and organizations like ICR and like Simon, for example, who are advocating for the human rights violation in the country and outside the country, would be engaging with those leaders to make sure the voices are together and to make sure we have the similar and same voice in everywhere we go. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much because it's it's so important to get to be talking to the right people, but to support to support directly the community. Yeah, because that's the intended purpose. Uh, as is that the community is able to um, best advocate for their for their their uh, restoration within the country. Uh, I appreciate you guys taking the time. Thank you, Simon. Saying thank you, Lucky. Um, we'll include all of the uh, uh, the taglines and the, uh, the websites uh, in in the, uh, the podcast notes, uh, as well as ways to get involved. Thanks so much. This has been Crossing Face. Thank you so much. No, thank you. you. Oh, yeah. Yeah.